Third scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 49 through 56. I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-laws against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, it is going to rain. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The Gospel of the Lord. Author of life, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would be with us this morning as we wrestle with it, so that your spirit might transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. Today's gospel lesson may not be an easy one for us to hear. For some, it's easier to think of Jesus as someone who doesn't have harsh words to speak, who only promotes the gospel through niceties and friendship. But that sanitized version of our Messiah does not live up to the scriptures. It ignores the Jesus who speaks of separating the sheep from the goats. It neglects the Jesus who brings fire and division. It undermines, in fact, the entire tradition of the law and the prophets that find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Here is the truth that we are reminded of today. Jesus and the gospel are offensive to the sensibilities of this world. The message of the kingdom is unflinching in its recognition of the power of sin and death over the hearts and minds of humanity. It is uncompromising in its demands for obedience to a new way of life. In one of our introductory classes to seminary, we were warned by our professor that we needed to be prepared for the way that undergoing our seminary education was going to change our relationships with our friends and our families. We were warned that the commitment we were making would likely set us against the people that we loved. At that time, I think many of us were skeptical about what we were being told. But the longer we were there, I think the more we came to realize and experience the truth of those words. And in this experience, I'm reminded of the words of the missiologist David Bosch, who wrote in his book, Transforming Mission, we know today that the empirical church will always be imperfect. Every church member who loves the church 
will also be deeply pained by it. This does not, however, call for discarding the church, but for reforming and renewing it. It's not that seminary made our faith any less, or that it caused us to love the church any less. Quite the opposite, really. The more that we came to love the church, the more that we grew deeper in our faith, the more that we asked of that faith, and of our church, and of ourselves, and of each other. I imagine that for those who actually had the chance to walk and talk with Jesus, their experience was even more magnified. Brian McLaren is an evangelical pastor and author who's been involved in church planning since the 1980s. And in his sermon for this week, he helps us better understand the perspective from which Jesus says these things. He says, in the short run, there is going to be trouble, and trouble is going to be in the family, and the trouble is going to be between the older generation and the younger generation. It is going to be a generational conflict. The, young, or the people who are used to the old way will dig in their heels, and the younger people, and it was mostly, we have to remember, Jesus was 33 as a movement leader. In all likelihood, his followers were younger than he was, many of them at any rate. Probably what we would, we would call what Jesus did, a youth movement. So pause and think about that for a second. When Jesus talks about setting children against parents, this is likely not a hypothetical for his followers. Many of them probably knew the pain of being rejected by their parents and community leaders for following this upstart kid who comes into town and is upsetting the status quo. McLaren continues, when Jesus came, he was not a pacifier. He was not a law and order dominator. He was an agitator. He was a fire starter. He knew that things had to heat up before people would wake up. He knew that as the Prince of Peace, you can't produce and bring real peace without bringing justice. And justice is about power. And so far in human history, not many people, besides Jesus, have given up power willingly. And so confrontation comes. Things heat up. It was true in Jesus' day, and it's true in our day. Sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. So let's think about what it looks like for things to get worse before they get better in a Christian context. It meant Jesus being put to death by the Roman Empire for criticizing their unjust rule of his people. It meant the Jesus movement being persecuted by their fellow believers for challenging the way that religious authorities collaborated with the state in order to gain access to power. It meant centuries of persecution from pagan governments, followed by more than a millennia of Christians killing each other for believing differently from one another. The spirit of Christ has been setting people against those they love from the first minute that Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom was at hand. And it will continue to set people against those whom they love until the kingdom reaches its fulfillment. 
But even in saying that, I know that it still remains an abstraction unless we can look at something concrete. So I want us to consider for a few minutes what it actually looks like for someone to be placed against something that they love. As some of you know and have read, George Takei published a graphic novel last month about his experiences as a child living in concentration camps in America during World War II. He tells us of how Japanese Americans had their property and their land seized by the government, how they were forced to sell off most of their possessions, how the first lodging place that he had in a camp was a hastily cleaned stable, and how the unsanitary conditions of the camp caused him and his infant sister to fall ill. Even as his families moved to a new camp, we learn how they're forced to keep the blinds of the train closed whenever they pass through a town so that other Americans would not see what was happening. He also recounts how each prisoner was tagged so that the guards could keep track of them. As a child in the camps, we see through the lens of childlike behaviors. He observed the older kids playing war and arguing over who had to be the Japanese so that they could be killed by the Americans. While his family was imprisoned in the camps, the government put out a questionnaire to the adult prisoners to assess their loyalty to the government. Two questions in particular proved to be a problem. The first asked whether they would serve in the armed forces of the United States. The second asked whether they would swear unqualified allegiance to the United States and forswear any obedience to the Japanese emperor or any foreign government. Now George's father, had no path to citizenship in the United States, even though he'd lived in America for 27 years. For him to answer yes to this second question would have meant becoming a stateless person. For George's mother, who was born on an American citizen, she couldn't answer yes to this question because she had no allegiance to Japan to forswear. Answering yes, would have confirmed the unfounded fears of other Americans that Japanese Americans had some sort of racial loyalty that undermined their American loyalty. In response to these answers, the Takei family was moved to a maximum security camp under the guard of tanks and machine guns with triple fencing of barbed wire. And it was at this camp that George's mother was eventually coerced into renouncing her citizenship. Now eventually the war did end, and the Takei family was freed from the camps, and the government was forced to reinstate the citizenship of Americans like George's mother. But the trauma of living in a concentration camp is not one that fades quickly. George writes, years later, the trauma of those experiences continued to haunt me. Most Japanese Americans from my parents' generation didn't like to talk about the internment with their children. As with many traumatic experiences, they were anguished by their memories and haunted by shame for something that wasn't their fault. Shame is a cruel thing. It should rest on the perpetrators, but they don't carry it the way the victims do. We see the trauma of the concentration camps live on in the Takei family as they spend their first six weeks of freedom and homelessness. We see it when George suffers under teachers who hate him for being Japanese, and the shame of having been put in the camps 
makes him feel as though he deserves their hatred. We see it when George and his father are working on the presidential campaign for Adlai Stevenson. They have a chance to meet Eleanor Roosevelt, but George's father leaves the office early because he cannot bear to shake hands with the wife of the man who imprisoned his family. As a teenager, George started studying American history to try and make sense of what had happened to his family. He says, I searched all my civics books and history books, but there was nothing about the internment of Japanese Americans. As I studied civics and government in school, I came to see the internment as an assault not only upon an entire group of Americans, but on the Constitution itself. How its guarantees of due process and equal protection had been decimated by forces of fear and prejudice unleashed by unscrupulous politicians. I couldn't reconcile what I read in these books about the shining ideals of our democracy with what I knew to be my childhood imprisonment. Instead, the only place that George can learn more about his experience as a child is talking with his father over the dinner table. Despite everything that happened to their family, his father still trusts in democracy as the best form of government. He teaches George that even though people in the system fail, the system can still succeed when it works for the people. George internalized these lessons. He became an activist through his art. He met the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He marched with him in the streets of Los Angeles. Through his role on Star Trek, George gained the fame that allows him to continue to be an advocate for Japanese Americans, for reconciliation between the United States of America and Japan, for the LGBTQ plus community, and for a democracy that actually serves the people. Near the end of the book, George reflects on the influence of his father's teachings. He says, And while in my lifetime, I've come to see the ideals he taught embraced with conviction, old outrages have begun to resurface with brutal results. This final clause is placed upon the image of brown-skinned children in cages. He then goes on to observe that the Supreme Court ruling that made it legal for his family to be imprisoned was not struck down until 2018, when the court ruled in favor of a new law targeting a different group of people, once again based simply on their country of origin. There is no question that George Takei loves the democratic institutions of the United States of America, but it is precisely that love that compels him to speak out when the country that he loves falls short of being the country that it can be. Like Takei, I was taught to believe in an America that's the best version of itself. I was taught that I live in a country that cares for the poor and the downtrodden, that welcomes the tired, poor, huddled masses yearning to be free, the homeless and tempest-tossed wretched of the earth. I was taught to believe in a democracy that worked for the common good. I was taught that America was a meritocracy, that if you worked hard and did what you were supposed to, then everyone has a fair shot in life. I was taught that all people are equal in the eyes of the law, 
that whether you're the richest of the rich or the poorest of the poor, justice would be done. In short, I was taught to believe in an America that embodies God's justice and kindness. So I ask you, what am I or any other person to do when America does not live up to those high ideals? It's not hatred that causes me to speak out when our government doesn't work for the common good. It's not hatred that drives me to name the ills of our economic systems. It's not hatred that compels my voice to speak out when our society normalizes hatred and fear. It's love, love for what this country can and should be. Love for the kingdom of God trying to burst forth into our world. Love is the fire that Christ is bringing upon the earth. It's the unquenchable flame of divine love that will burn away the chaff of hatred and anger. It's a baptism of love that will cause a new heaven and a new earth to rise from the ashes of what is now. Today's scripture closes by asking whether we know how to interpret the present time. So I ask you to look at the world today. Look at the fear. Look at the anxiety. Look at the anger, at the hatred, at the demonization of human beings. Now ask yourself, what is needed in this present time? Is it not love? Perfect love that will drive out any fear. Love that brings peace to those who are anxious. Love that triumphs over anger and hatred. Love that celebrates the image of God in every precious child of the divine. And if love sets you against the powers of sin and death, then so be it. Christ's love is the true reality that will not be overcome. It is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end of all that has been, all that is, and all that ever will be. Amen. Would you please pray once again with me? Our prayer of dedication this morning is titled, Come Lord, and it was written by Dom Helder Camara in The Desert is Fertile. God, do not smile and say you are already with us. Millions do not know you, and to us who do, what is the difference? What is the point of your presence if our lives do not alter? Change our lives. Shatter our complacency. Make your word flesh of our flesh, blood of our blood, and our life's purpose. Take away the quietness of a clear conscience. Press us uncomfortably. For only thus that other peace is made. Your peace. Amen.